Good morning, everyone, and welcome to part three of the Revelation. We're glad you joined us and uh, hope you have your Bible handy uh, so that you can dig in and, and follow along with, with us. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. What do you think? Have you ever thought about this? What do you think will be the first thing you see when you get to heaven? People have wondered, people have tried to write books about it, people have tried to guess at it. I don't know, will we see the big pearly gates first? Maybe streets of gold, is that the first thing that will catch our eye? Is it some person, maybe um, someone who's gone before us, maybe a family member? Obviously, we all want to see Jesus. What is going to be that first reaction? I heard someone say something one time that really caught my attention. Someone said that when we first get to heaven and we first get our first glimpse of heaven, the very first thing we're going to say is, oh, <laughs> meaning that when we get to heaven and, 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 what is, uh, uh, and what is heaven becomes a reality to us and something that we can see, finally, we'll understand. The songwriter was right when he said, we will understand it better by and by. Now, I don't know what's the first thing that you will see or that I will see when we get to heaven, but I know the first thing that John saw when he got to heaven. When he was invited to step into heaven through this vision that he's given, this revelation that he's given, the first thing that John saw was an incredible worship experience. A worship experience, by the way, that was unlike any he had ever experienced on earth. Frankly, unlike any I've ever experienced on earth. And I'm pretty sure you would say the same thing. I'm convinced one moment in heaven will indeed clear up a whole lot of our questions. And in like manner, one glimpse of heaven, and when we come to understand the, the reality of heaven, the unseen reality of heaven, then we are more able to cope with this life. That understanding of the reality of heaven, whether we can see it or not right now, whether we can grasp it or not right now, we know will bring strength for today and hope for tomorrow. And we said that's what Revelation is all about. Now, at this place in our study, we're, we're about to turn a corner. Uh, frankly, a whole lot more judgment is coming now, a whole lot more death, a whole lot more pain, a whole lot more agony, a whole lot more destruction. All of these things are about to come to pass. So please note where this particular scene that we're going to see today unfolds at the very beginning of the book. I don't think that's by accident. I think it's by design because John seems to be wanting us to have an oh moment, a moment when we say, oh, I get it. I think he wants us to have a moment to understand that no matter how bad things get, we don't have to panic. The one thing that we notice when John is taken into the heavens is there is no panic in heaven even though it seems to the church on the earth that Rome is winning, even though it seems to the people of God that evil is winning, even though it seems to John and to his, uh, his friends in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and the others that the end is a horrible thing, John is reminding them things are not as they seem. And while there is some distress on the earth, there is no panic in heaven. Aren't you glad to know that last year when a pandemic struck the world and there was panic all over, that there was no panic in heaven? Aren't you glad that when moments come into our lives that seem like everything is out of place and everything is going awry, that there's no panic 
in heaven. Well, I want us to dig in and take a look at this incredible scene in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, I know that's a lot to cover, but we'll kind of unpack it as we go. Um, commentator Charles Hill wrote something important that I wanted to share with you as we dive in. He said, Revelation delivers to the distressed churches of Asia Minor and to all the churches in all ages the triumphant assurance that behind the scenes of history and despite the vicissitudes of history, the kingdom of God is in power and Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, is on his Father's throne, executing his sovereign judgment over the world. <laughs> wow, what a thought. So today, we're going to understand why we do not have to panic no matter what happens around us and why we don't have to fear this book of Revelation, but instead wrap it into our minds so that we have hope for tomorrow and strength for today. So today we're going to learn a lot about worship. That's what these chapters are dealing with, worship. The clear message to the church is that there is one on the throne who is worthy of worship. Now, once again, our frame for, uh, framework for our flow is going to be four things that John saw. Remember, these things that we're looking at are important. What John saw, what John heard. Those are the things that we're focusing on as we look at these little small, small, small windows of opportunity to, to see something incredible, see something important. So four things really that John saw. The first thing he sees is a throne, a throne. Beginning in chapter four and verse one, John sees the Lord on his throne, the beautiful Lord. We get a breathtaking image of the sovereign God. John is given a, a glimpse of the throne and the, the throne in heaven and the one who sits on the throne is clearly indescribable. John has no words. And so he uses images the best he can to help us to see the beauty, the power, the, the glory, and the strength of the Lord. Let's just read a few of them. Beginning in verse two, we read these words. John says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. This is a magnificent throne, and there is one seated on the throne. Keep that in mind, and keep your eye on the one who is seated on the throne. Verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now look, he's having a hard time explaining. He's beginning to see something that we see as beautiful, these wonderful gems that sparkle, and when we look at them, we are breathtaking because of their beauty. And around the throne, he says, was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, people have wondered about the identity of these 24 elders, and frankly, we're not told. Speculation is that by some is that they are angelic beings, but I prefer the interpretation that they are human beings. They, they, they are, 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 are people who have been to heaven. And I think I'll show you why as we progress through the text. 
Verse five says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings. Now we've gone from talking about his beauty to talking about his power. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings, reminiscent, by the way, of all the way back in the book of Exodus when we see Moses climb up Mount Sinai into the presence of God. And when the children of Israel looked up, the cloud hung over the mountain and there was thundering and lightning. It speaks of his power. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, we people have wondered, what is that? Who is that? And we just frankly don't know. Verse 6 says, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. What an incredible vision. First thing John sees is a throne. And the one who has owned the throne is clearly powerful, glorious, beautiful, and in control. (laughs) No need to panic. Alistair Begg, an American pastor, actually from Scottish birth, but uh, lineage, but, but Alistair Begg's a writer, preacher, teacher. Some of you may recognize his name, some of you may not. He said something interesting that caught my attention and it really has become the basis of my study through this book of Revelation. Alistair Begg said, as we study Revelation, it's important to remember that the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. Now that makes a lot of sense to me. The plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. You see, sometimes we get so lost in the things that are not clear and not plain to us that we miss the main thing. I want to encourage you as we walk through this study for the next several weeks to focus in on the main things and the main things, my friend, are the plain things. Here in this text, the plain and the main thing that John sees is the sovereign God on his throne. And he describes the Lord in this beauty and splendor so that we can understand that he is indeed in control and there is no need to panic. The second thing John sees is a scroll. If you look to chapter 5, and uh, you'll you'll see this description, Uh, let me read just a portion of it, beginning in verse um, verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Now we're still focused on the throne and the one who is seated on the scroll uh, on the throne, but now we're going to notice that this one on the throne has in his right hand a scroll. Now the right hand always speaks of authority. It, it, It speaks of of, of power. It speaks of authority. You, you recall, for example, that when the disciples were following Jesus and he started talking about his kingdom, what did they ask him? They said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom or when you're on your throne, basically is what they're saying, who's going to be at your right hand and who's going to be at your left? Who's going to be placed in positions of authority? So he, he speaks of authority. He has it in the right hand. What does he have? A scroll. Now, now notice what it says about this scroll. John says it was written within and on the back. That is, it was full. Now, keep in mind, the scroll rolls out, right? And it is written on both sides. A lot is written here. And he says it's sealed with seven seals. Now, typically, a scroll would be rolled up a little bit and sealed so that no one could open it, rolled up a little bit more, sealed so that no one could open it, rolled up a little bit more, and sealed. So that's the idea. And then he says in verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
Now, this is an important, important chapter, and actually it's going to play out for the next several chapters. And um, we, the first thing you say, well, so what is this scroll? And, and, and we don't really know. We know it's important because it's written on both sides. We know it's important because it's sealed with seven seals. We, we know it's something that, that only uh, certain ones are qualified to open. That's the idea of it being sealed. Now, we'll see more about this book and these seven seals next week. But suffice it to say for now, we're not told exactly what the book contains, but several things suggest to us that the book contains the story of man losing his lordship, his lordship over the earth to Satan. You remember when God gave uh, Adam the authority over the earth? He said, no, you keep it. You dress it and you keep it. And then Satan, the usurper, um, stole much of the glory of this earth. And, and so this book, many believe, shows us or tells us the story of, of how that happened and then how the God-man, the Savior, Jesus, came to restore, to redeem uh, all of God's creation. So again, the main thing is the plain thing. And the, the plain thing here is clear. There's only one who is worthy to open the book that brings about the consummation of creation. There's only one who's able and worthy. No one else. (laughs) Who's worthy, John says. Who can open the book? John begins to weep. If you read that entirety, I I didn't read all those verses, you see that John began to weep. He wanted the book open, wanting the consummation of this earth to come, wanting that, that redemption of creation to come about. And who's worthy to bring that about? That's the important thing. That's the main thing. And that's a plain thing here when we see the scroll. The third thing John sees is a lamb. And I can, I've been waiting to get to this one. John sees a lamb. In verses 6 through 10, this lamb is incredible. And it's a beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelations. There are not many multiple ones. It is the one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Each week we've seen him revealed by John. Now we see him again revealed in this portion of the passage. Look at what happens. It says in verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. A lamb standing. As though it had been slain. Are Are you tracking now? Though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So here we see this picture. Here we see this this image that, that John is seeing. He sees a lamb. And we immediately begin to recognize that this lamb is the lamb of God, Jesus. We're reminded, we're taken back to all the times that he's referred to as a lamb in scriptures. We remember it was John the baptizer who, when he introduced him for ministry on this earth, said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that Jesus himself and the prophets described him as a lamb going to a slaughter as he was going to the cross. What a sight. This is a lamb. It's no ordinary lamb. He's clearly different from all the other features. All of his features are clearly symbolic and and, and so much to follow and so much to grab into here. But what we need to see is here is a lamb. The term used here in the Greek is arnion. It's the regular, uh, a little different. The regular word for lamb is arnon. Just slight difference, but Arnion, the one used here, is the diminutive form and means a little lamb, a little lamb. 
but it came to be used as a term of endearment. It doesn't necessarily mean little in size. It doesn't, it does not mean little in importance, but it, mean, it, it, it denotes a term of endearment, this dear lamb, this sweet lamb. And of course we recognize it as the lamb of God. Just a little tidbit to throw in here to notice as we go on through. Even though, even though the book of Revelation is largely about the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus is usually described, most often described, I will say anyway, by two animals, a lion and a lamb. Most believe that the lamb describes his first coming when he came meek and mild and born in a cattle stall and lay in a manger and coming meek and lowly and, 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 and being crucified and, and with a horrible death. And, and then the lion represents his second coming when he comes as the king and the Lord. And even though this book is largely about his coming, his next coming, it's interesting that the term lamb, he is described as lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation and lion only once, only once. Why? Because everything here, everything we're reading is based upon his finished work on the cross, his sacrificial death as the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> Look at what we see in verses 9 and 10. These verses are incredible. Now listen, here's the gospel. I said to you in week one that, that, that there is no clearer place. There's no place that we see any clearer the story of redemption in all the Bible than in Revelation. Well, here we go. Here it is. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says, and they sang a new song. That is the elders. They sang a new song. By the way, there might be something to that. Those of you that don't like, don't like new songs, well, get ready. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, talking to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What a song. Now we see the praise beginning to be lifted. Now we see the adoration coming to pass. Now we see the elders, the 24 elders who are singing a song. By the way, we never hear, we never read in Scripture of angels singing, oddly enough. Now, don't say Pastor Eddie said they don't sing. I don't know, but we never see it in Scripture. They're always proclaiming, but here these elders are singing a new song. And look what they're singing. They're offering their praise and their adoration. The worship and service is beginning. And now John is engulfed in this movement of the Spirit of God that is bringing people to a place of praise and worship. And they said he's worthy. Why? Because of his death on the cross. Worthy are you because you were slain. That's talking about his death on the cross. Why do we worship Jesus today? And why is he worthy of our praise and worship? He is worthy today because of his death on the cross. He's worthy because his blood paid our ransom and redeemed God's people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, red and yellow, black and white. They are all precious in his sight. That's what he's saying here. By your blood, you ransomed people, God's people. What an incredible scene. No wonder he is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our praise because he's made us a kingdom of priests to our God and that we will reign on the earth forever. He's talking about this process of redemption that is incredible. What an experience of worship. John sees a throne and the one who's on the throne. John sees a scroll that's written within and without that obviously speaks of the consummation of time, the, the consummation only worthy to be opened up and revealed by that one who brings salvation. And then we see the lamb. 
Oh, what a sight. But there's one more thing that I want you to see. John sees a multitude. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. In verse 11, we see something I think that's pretty, pretty incredible. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. I don't know what that number is, but it's a lot. <laughs> myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Then he continues. This multitude that he saw was saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the multitude gets bigger. Look. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them, all of creation, he's saying. I hear all of creation saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a sight. This multitude that takes in all of creation, the angelic host, the earthly host, creatures of the sea and in the sea and around, all worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The only response, the only possible response from the four living creatures, the only response from the 24 elders is to burst into this adoration and praise. The only Per, uh, uh, right response from creation is to burst into adoration and praise they worship. Verse 14 summarizes the heart of the entire worship experience. The four living creatures said amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. Amen means truly, truly. Truly, truly, you are who you claim to be. Truly, truly, you are sovereign God with all things in control. And truly, truly, we know there is no panic in heaven. This is heaven's response. The response of the angelic host asserting the validity of his praise and the falling down of the elders in worship shows the church's response to be the sovereignty of God and the worthiness of the Lamb. So I've got to bring this thing in for a landing today. So let me, let me give you a takeaway, and I'll, I'll make a couple of brief comments in regard to that. Our takeaway is simple today. We worship because he's holy. <laughs> you say, well, why should I go to worship today? Why should I experience worship this morning? Why, why should I have worship this evening? Why, why do we worship? Why do we do these online broadcasts? Why do we have the music? Why do we have the praise? Why do we have the singing? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Why do we worship? Because he is worthy. There's no other reason supreme to that one. He is worthy. It's an incredible scene that we see here in heaven. Sure, it's in heaven. It's something that is happening, I'm convinced now, but it's something that of an event in the future, no doubt. But it should tell us something about our worship here on earth. I think there's something we can glean from that. Let me, let me close by drawing our attention to a couple of things about their worship. First of all, I noticed that they fell down before him. Worship was their response. Worship was something that they, they, when they saw his beauty, they fell. When they saw his strength, they fell. When they saw his glory, they fell. And, and then John says they sang a new song. 
Aren't you glad that singing is a part of worship experience? I don't know about you. Maybe you don't like to sing. I do. I'll admit that, confess that. I love to sing. But singing does something for my heart and soul. And you know what? You don't have to be a great singer. There's nothing said about how powerful the song was. or how It just says they sang. They're the, the, what was in their heart began to come out of their mouth. And then I noticed that they were totally engaged in the experience. This was not a spectator sport. John was not just standing back in the background saying, wow, he's engaged. He's engaged. When he sees the scroll in the hand of, of the one on the throne, he says, I begin to cry. Who can work? Who's worthy? To, oh, he's engaged. Don't just, don't just be a bystander in worship. When you come together with God's people to worship today, get engaged. It doesn't mean you have to do something crazy or that's uncomfortable to you. It simply means you engage to the point that you are truly in a moment of worship. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm convinced that worship will do something in your heart as well. Not only is worship something that honors and glorifies God, and surely that is the purpose, but I'm telling you, when you come to this, um, this space of worship, this place that we call worship in a true and genuine way, your heart is touched, your life is changed, and it impacts you. I jotted down four things that kind of, in my own life, in my own heart, worship tends to do for me, tends to work in me. Four things. First of all, it redirects my focus. Worship redirects our focus. You see, if we're not careful, we get so focused on what's going down in this world that we get panicky, we get stressful, we get worried. Why? Because our focus is on earthly things. Paul told us already when he wrote to the Colossians, set your affections on things above. And so, you see, worship helps me to redirect my focus from the things that are happening here that bring panic to what is the reality, the unseen reality around the throne. Secondly, worship reorders my priorities. You see, if I'm not careful, I, my priorities become things that are most important to me, right? Me first, others second, and Jesus somewhere in between. That's not the correct order. But sometimes we need to redirect. Focus, worship helps me to reorder my priorities, to remember that my priority is to seek first the king and to focus in on the throne. Third, Worship reaffirms his lordship in my life. Worship reaffirms his lordship. That is that he is the sovereign God. He is the only one on the throne and he is the only one to be worshiped. He's in charge. Now, I think that's important because I don't know about you. I think I do, but I'm not sure. I know this about me and I'm pretty sure it's about human nature in between. We, we have tendencies to all climb up on our little thrones and establish our little kingdoms, and we want to rule and reign in those little kingdoms. Am I getting close? You know what I'm saying? I need to build my little own little kingdom over here, whether it's my business or, or maybe it's a relationship or, or maybe it's my family or maybe it's my, my hobby or, or whatever part of my life. I, I want to build my, little own, my own little kingdom and I want to sit on my little throne. Worship reminds me that I don't have a throne, that there's only one who sits on the throne and he is in control of all. So worship, yes, it redirects my focus, it reorders my priorities, but it also reaffirms that he is Lord, that is he is ruler, emperor, owner of my life. And finally, it reshapes our affections. It reshapes our affections. It reminds me, it deepens my love 
for the beautiful Lord Jesus. You see, worship comes when I see him in his grandeur, yes, in his power, yes. But perhaps most important, worship from the heart comes when I see his beauty, when I see the beauty of the Lord in all of his glory. Like the elders, I want to fall down and worship. Like the four creatures, I want to say truly, truly, amen and amen. So I would encourage you, I would encourage you to work toward, to move toward a place of worship, to experience genuine and real worship in your life. Whether it's where you are now, home, work, on the road, listening to this podcast, listening to this, watching this broadcast, I don't know, wherever you are, take a moment to engage in some worship. If you're gathered together with others, what a joyful experience. Nothing, even, nothing greater than being able to gather with others for this experience. You remember, I think it's important that John noted that not only was he there, not only was he there beholding the throne, there was a multitude there. Listen, speak something to corporate worship, but that's another message for another day. For now, I'll just close with this thought. We worship because he is worthy. Well, God bless you. Thank you for giving me this time together. We look forward to next week and going deeper into this book. But let me say before I close that if you need to talk with someone, if you need to pray with someone, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have uh, needs, please, there's someone waiting right now, live, waiting to chat with you. Whether you're on our Facebook feed or, or whether you're on our uh, web, website, whichever it may be, people are available. They're listening for you right now. They're ready to help you, pray for you right now. Maybe just you want to comment and say, hey, thanks for putting this up. It's a blessing in my life. Or, or maybe you just want to comment and, and thank them for being there to pray for other people. Maybe you just want to comment in some other way. We welcome them. We love your engagement. God bless you. Let me pray for you and we'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible book and thank you for all that it is to us. May we, O Lord, by studying this book, come to understand that we have a bright hope for the future and we have strength for today. And we find both of those in the living Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who's on his throne, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who purchased us, who redeemed us, who made us kings and priests forever. God, I pray that you would receive our worship and our praise at this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.